Peter loved and followed Jesus, and even though he denied Christ, Peter was forgiven. He followed his Lord for the rest of his life. Indeed, we've seen how he preached in Jerusalem, and how he withstood the authorities who tried to silence him. Welcome to the Bible Study Hour, a radio and internet program with Dr. James Boyce, preparing you to think and act biblically. Peter was an ordinary fisherman until he met Jesus. He followed his Lord, he disappointed his Lord, and he loved Jesus Christ his Lord. Today we'll see a great test of Peter's faith as he's called to raise a good woman from the dead. Imagine the kind of faith that took. Let's listen now as Dr. Boyce teaches from Acts chapter 9. We're studying the book of Acts, and our study has brought us to the end of chapter 9, to a short section beginning with verse 32, going through verse 43 that concerns the apostle Peter. And we might be a bit surprised to find a story about Peter at this point. We're going to see more of him. He comes in again in a big way in chapter 10, and he's there in 11 and 12. And when we get to chapter 13, we begin again with Paul, whose story, whose conversion story, we've already seen in the first portion of this chapter 9. It's an interesting thing what's going on here in this portion of the book. If you analyze Acts at all, you know that the first 12 chapters are concerned mostly with Peter. This book is called the Acts of the Apostles, but if you would divide it up, this first section could, I suppose, very well be called the Acts of Peter. And then beginning with chapter 13, Peter recedes from view, Paul emerges, and if you were going to name that in line with the title we do use, you could call that the Acts of the Apostle Paul. What we have here in the middle is a blending. As one recedes and the other ascends, we have an overlapping, and yet not just an overlapping. As Luke puts this together, it's really very clever thing that he does. Just as a writer showing in these chapters, which make the transition, the fact, the very important fact, that Peter, the great apostle to the Jews, and Paul, the great apostle to the Gentiles were not teaching or doing two different things, but were two apostles of the one Lord and were united in his work. Now, that's important. It's important if for no other reason because it has been roundly denied in liberal scholarship. You know the history of liberal scholarship in the last century. You'll know, I'm sure, that the theologians in Germany particularly made a distinction between what they called the primitive teaching of the Jewish community centered in Peter and the later development or changed teaching of the Gentile community centered in Paul. They handled this in a very interesting way, and the history of it is interesting. Back before this idea ever found its way into biblical interpretation, it was found in terms of an historical view of history by the great historian Hegel. Hegel's the man who developed the dialectic, the idea that in one period of history there is a thesis, 
and that is followed by an antithesis, and then those two struggle together to produce a resolution which Hegel called the synthesis. And then that becomes a new thesis, and there's another antithesis, and more struggle, and so on. Now, Hegel developed that as a philosophy of history. He said that's the way history progresses. There's a certain thoroughness about the German mind, according to which you can't say anything that is taken as being good, that it is not immediately applied to absolutely everything else. And this is what happened with Hegel's view of history. We know one form of that in Marxism, because Karl Marx, another German, got hold of it and said, well, this is the view of history. This is the philosophy that's needed to explain economics. This is what's happening in the economic world, and the basis of everything is economics. So he developed a dialectic that had an economic base, in which you have the proletariat struggling against the capitalists. You have a resolution in which the masses take over the means of production, and you establish a classless society, which is the communist state. Now, what happened there with Hegel in his atheistic economic philosophy also happened in religion in Germany in that period. There was a German churchman and professor by the name of Ferdinand Christian Bauer, and he got hold of this and said, well, this is the way to understand the history of the early church. First of all, you have this primitive Jewish theology centered in Peter. This produces an antithesis, which is seen in the Gentile theology of St. Paul. And then there's a struggle, and he went to that period in the story of the early church where Peter and Paul actually did have a disagreement, though there was basic agreement. And he said, as a result of that struggle, you have a resolution, which is the early Catholic Church, and so on. Protestant Church and a resolution, and so on. Well, I go into that only to say that this is not what Luke is teaching. What Luke is showing here is that these two great apostles are of one mind doing the same work. And the same one who is Peter's Lord is Paul's Lord as well, and the same one who calls Paul, and sends him to be the apostle to the Gentiles now, also calls Peter and does what? Sends him to open the door to the Gentiles. See, you have to take chapters 9 and 10 together. What you have here are two parallel accounts, two great breakthroughs, two great openings of doors for this next great movement of the expansion of the church. Church has expanded from Jerusalem into the neighboring area, and it's gone to Samaria, and Philip has been instrumental as he's carried that not only there but up and down the coast, but, you know, basically still Jewish areas. Now, for the first time, there's going to be a breakthrough to the Jewish community, and so God calls Paul when he's on his way to Damascus to persecute the Christians there who nevertheless are in Jewish synagogues but a Gentile city, and says, I'm going to send you to be the apostle to the Gentiles. And in chapter 10, he calls Peter and sends him to Cornelius, a Roman soldier, a Gentile of the Gentiles, if you will, and so opens the door there as well. There are other parallels. It's an interesting thing to study these just in terms of the form and structure of the chapters. Each of them involves two sets of individuals. In chapter 9, Paul and Ananias. Ananias is hesitant about going to talk to Paul. 
In chapter 10, you have Peter and Cornelius, and Peter is hesitant about going to talk to Cornelius and so on. It just makes a very interesting study. Now, at the very end of chapter 9, we have an incident that tells about Peter's ministry just before God sends him to Cornelius and is preparatory for it. Peter was doing what Peter should have been doing in these days. It would seem that many of the apostles remained in Jerusalem, I think wrongly. It's hard to say that, but I think wrongly. They were sent like everybody else and all the world with the gospel, but they attended to stay in Jerusalem. But at least in this section of the story, this was not Peter's story. Peter was going around. He was the apostle to the Jews, and so he was going around visiting these various communities where the gospel had spread. He had already been up in Antioch and had been examining that situation. He'd been in Samaria, and now he was making his way down toward the coast. This is where Philip had been. Philip had been sent down to the Ethiopian, and after he had spoken to the Ethiopian about the Lord, he made his way up the coast to Caesarea through all this area, and there were churches there. Because when we read this account at the end of chapter 9, we find it's not just an individual here or an individual there. It's actually a body of believers, those who worked together, knew one another, prayed for one another, and were concerned about one another. And so Peter, in his capacity as the apostle to the Jews, is checking up on these communities. Now, there's some very interesting and sound historical details your liberal scholars would say, oh, this is just a fabrication. This is historical fiction in order to make the kind of points Luke wants to make. But there are very interesting historical details. Some of them concern the death of this woman Dorcas in Joppa. Joppa, incidentally, was a very Jewish community. It's why Peter had gone there. And when this woman died, you notice from the details of the story that they did not bury her right away. That's significant. In previous chapters, Ananias and Sapphira died in Jerusalem. They buried them that very day. And that's significant. They had to. That was the law. In Jerusalem, a body was not allowed to remain around for a second day. It had to be buried at once. But not outside of Jerusalem. There you had three days. And so during the three days, these people who knew and loved this woman Dorcas sent for Peter, undoubtedly expecting a miracle. They weren't just sending for Peter, saying, uh, Peter, this woman is somebody rather special down here, and so we'd like the bishop to come and do the funeral service. It wasn't a question of that at all. Peter was doing miracles at the time. That's the way the story goes. The reputation of what was being accomplished through Peter was spreading, and they undoubtedly called him, thinking that he might do that. But there you have an interesting detail of the story. There's another one in verse 39. When Peter went up to that room, and they were all there weeping and crying. It says that the women showed him the robes and the other clothing that Dorcas had made while she was still alive. That's a nice touch, isn't it? The women appreciating the thing that this woman had done for those about, very appreciative of what we would call our good works or good deeds. You see, that detail is there in the story. There's some parallels in the story to two of the healings and resurrections that the Lord Jesus Christ did during the days of his ministry. The obvious one is to John 11, to the raising of Lazarus, because it involved in John 11 the fact that Jesus wasn't there when Lazarus' his friend died, and so they had to send for him, and he came. 
and the resurrection took place after a passage of time. There's a similarity here. And perhaps, perhaps as Peter was making his way up from Lydda to Joppa, where this was going to be done, and obviously thinking about what God might accomplish through him on this occasion, perhaps Peter was thinking of this and the parallel to the ministry of his Lord in whose steps he was following. Then when he got there, there was another parallel. In uh, the fifth chapter of Mark, beginning about verse 35, you have the story of Christ raising the daughter of this man, Jarius. And when he came into the upper room, the same thing was happening. There was all this wailing. All the mourners were there. The family was there. Great uproar. Jesus put them all out in order that it might be quiet. And then he called to that girl, a young woman, daughter, maiden, and she arose in response to his voice. I think Peter must have had that in mind. Peter must have come into that room and undoubtedly have been distressed because he was an empathetic individual, but realizing that this just was not the atmosphere in which anything like that could take place and thinking about that time when he had been with Jesus and the occasion of the other resurrection, and then emulating his master said, now look, everybody has to leave. You just have to get out of here. It has to be quiet. And after they were out, we're told that he knelt and prayed. I don't know what he prayed, but I must think that that earlier story was going through his mind. Oh, he was an apostle, and God had been doing miracles through him, but think what faith that must have required for Peter to get up from his knees and turn to that dead woman and call her by name, Tabitha, and say, get up. God had worked in him, and God was going to do this, and undoubtedly God gave him the faith to do it, but it certainly took a large measure of faith. Nevertheless, when he spoke that way, as Jesus had spoken on that occasion before him, the same Lord raised up this woman. And so, as we're told, the story spread all over. What an unlikely person, humanly speaking, it was to be used in such a great way by Jesus Christ in these early days of the history of the church. Because what was Peter, after all? Peter was just a fisherman. He was out fishing when Jesus first called him. He saw him there with his nets, mending them on the seashore in the daytime, as the fishermen did. And Jesus said to him, just follow me. And I suppose it was in response to a rather quizzical look on Peter's face that Jesus explained, saying, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Now you're a fisher of fish, but if you follow me, I'm going to give you a greater task to do. I'm going to teach you how to fish for men. In Luke's gospel, the fifth chapter, there's a fuller account of that calling. Both Matthew and Mark were told how he called Peter, merely saying, follow me. But in Luke, there's an account that tells how Jesus did a miracle in causing Peter to catch a great number of fish. And Peter, realizing that it was not the time of day and it was an unusual number and the power and the glory of this one who was calling him was somehow revealed, responded by saying, depart from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. Why are you calling me? You're the holy one. You're a special one. You're a prophet. Don't call me. I'm, I'm just a fisherman and a sinful one at that. And he spoke truly. But of course, that's what God uses. I mean, if God didn't use sinful men and 
sinful women, he couldn't use anybody because all of us are. And it's not what we are or where we come from. It's what he makes us that counts and what he'll do through us. And that's what he chose to do through Peter. Later, when Paul came to write about God's procedure, he says, God doesn't choose the wise or the mighty or the noble, but God chooses the things that are of no account in order to bring to nothing the things that are. And Peter was a prime example, just a fisherman. But Jesus called him and began to teach him about himself. We were to run through the great events of Peter's life. The next event we'd come to is that moment when before all of the other disciples, he gave his great profession of faith in Christ, that great insight into who Jesus Christ was. Jesus was teaching them by the Socratic method at that time. He was asking them questions. And the question he asked them was what the people were saying about him, because after all, they'd be saying that off on the side and quietly, and the disciples would be picking this up. And he said to them, now, what are the people saying about me? Who do they say I am? And they said, well, you know, some say you're one of the prophets. Some say you're Elijah, come back. Some say you're the prophet that was mentioned back in Deuteronomy to Moses as one who should come in the last day, somebody like that. And then he turned to them and said, but who do you say that I am? Jesus had a marvelous way of never letting people off the hook. Just as he deals with us, he doesn't let us off the hook. And so he made it personal. He said, who do you say that I am? doesn't say that there was a moment of quiet, but I'll bet there was. And then Peter. Peter, who was always the first to speak, and usually when he spoke, spoke foolishly, on this occasion really had it. He said, well, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You're the anointed one, the Messiah, the very Son of God. Jesus had to stop and point out to the disciples that this was a really unusual thing on Peter's part, because I guess they had learned that at least 70% of what Peter said you could disregard, because he'd either contradict it later or it would be self-evidently false. So Jesus, knowing the way they would tend to take anything Peter said, pointed out, no, on this occasion, Peter, you haven't said that from yourself, but what you have said concerning who I am has been given you by the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit revealed this to you. And so when you point out that I'm the Messiah, the Son of the living God, that's what I am. And Peter, who just had this marvelous insight, instead of being humbled by it, said, well, <laughs> that's right. Look at that, guys. <laughs> Holy Spirit spoke to me. I, I know who he is. And Jesus went on in the next breath to say, yes, and the Son of Man must suffer and die. And Peter, feeling very high on himself, said, oh, no, Lord, don't let that ever happen to you. Why, we don't want you to suffer and die. And Jesus had to say to him, depart from me, Satan, because he recognized that that was not the voice of the Holy Spirit. That was the voice of Satan who was trying to keep him from the cross. What a moment that was in Peter's life. One moment, the vehicle of God's revelation, the next making says a foolish error. And yet that was Peter. And that's us. We live the same way. We're like Elijah. We're up one moment on the mountain calling down fire from heaven. The next we're down in the valley. We're saying, oh Lord, let me die. It's no good for me even to be living. And that's what Peter was. Well, Later in his life, you know, he denied the Lord, 
It was the same sort of mistake. Peter was feeling very high on himself. It was the time of the final week, and all of the enemies were gathered, and the storm clouds were settling over Jerusalem, and everybody knew it was dangerous even for Jesus to be there. He seemed oblivious to the danger. He just going on as if everything was all right. He was speaking gloomy things, but, but Peter, Peter said, you know, I don't know if these others can be counted on, these other disciples. You've said that everybody's going to abandon you. You know, you think you find that somewhere in the Psalms, that they're all going to abandon you, and you prophesy that. But there's one thing I want you to know, Jesus. I, Peter, am never going to do that. I'm going to stick with you even to death, if that's what's coming. And he really thought he was. When they came to arrest Jesus in the garden, he pulled out his sword. He was ready to fight. They could have killed Peter at that moment because he wasn't going to abandon Jesus. But they took Jesus, and Peter, still trying to do what he thought was right, still trying to be loyal, followed the Lord a long way off. And it was while he was following at a distance, waiting in the courtyard, that one by one servants began to come and say, weren't you with him? And Peter said, oh, no, 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 not me. And they said, well, now, you must be one of his disciples because you're a Galilean. Your speech is Galilean. You have that Galilean accent. You're not from Jerusalem. And he said, no, no. And finally, they persevered in the accusation. We're told he even swore. I don't know how you swore in those days. I don't find that in the Bible, but I guess you swore the same way you swear today. You use the name of God. Use it in vain. I don't know if he used the name Jehovah or Adonai or something like that, but he must have used the name of God. Isn't it ironic? Peter, in the name of God, denying that he knows God, because that's who Jesus was. And yet, you see, that was Peter. We're told that Peter went out and wept bitterly when Jesus glanced at him and he realized what he had done. Peter had fallen so low that by our Lord's own testimony, he would have fallen away if it weren't that Jesus had prayed for him. Because Jesus said, Satan has desired to sift you like wheat. He's going to deal with him the way a farmer deals with wheat at threshing time. You put it on the threshing floor, you run over it with something heavy to separate the wheat from the chaff, you throw it up in the air where the wind blows and all the chaff blows away and the grain settles down. And Jesus said to Peter, that's what Satan wanted to do with you. He wanted to treat you like wheat. Satan came and he said, why, look, this big bag of wind, Peter, is nothing but chaff. If you give me a chance to blow on him, Peter's going to be gone. Jesus says, that's exactly what would have happened to you, except that I prayed for you. And when I prayed for you, your faith will be strengthened. You're going to come through this and your faith is going to be strengthened. And what it's going to come out of it is merely the winnowing. We're going to get rid of some of the chaff, and what's going to be left there is the grain that I have placed within you. And that's what happened to Peter. Peter was greatly humbled by his denial, greatly weakened in himself, but greatly strengthened in Jesus. And you know that at the time of the resurrection, when most of the disciples were not even in Jerusalem, having scattered back over the Mount of Olives to Bethany, where they'd been spending time every day that week, Peter, John, were there in the city. And when the word came from the women on Easter morning that the tomb was empty, it was Peter and John who rushed to the tomb. Peter actually getting there 
and looking in and seeing that the body of Jesus was gone. And then there was the moment when Jesus appeared and revealed himself to them all. And later in Galilee, when Peter had returned there at our Lord's own command, told to go and wait for him, Jesus came and called to Peter and recommissioned him to service. Peter had denied the Lord three times, and so Jesus recommissioned him three times. He said to him, Peter, do you love me? Peter said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Peter may have said many foolish things, and Peter may have boasted of a strength he didn't have, but the one thing that was really true about Peter is that he'd come to love Jesus. And if he had loved him before, he certainly loved him now after the death and resurrection when he understood what it was that Jesus had done to save him, Peter, a poor fisherman who didn't even have the strength to stand by his master in the time of need. When Jesus said, Peter, do you love me? He said, yes, Lord, I do. And Jesus repeated it. Peter, do you love me? He said, yes, Lord. You know all things. You know that I love you. And the Lord repeated it a third time. Peter, do you love me? He said, yes, I do. And Jesus said the same thing he had said to Peter at the beginning, then follow me. And the point I'm making, you see, is that that's what Peter was doing here. He was following Jesus. He was doing the same things that Jesus had been doing. He was serving in the same way. He was preaching the same message. He was showing the same character. And the same God was working in Peter as it worked in Jesus Christ. Let me give you a few observations on this story. The first is how fast and wide the gospel had spread in these early days. You see, it hasn't been very long into the history of what we call the Christian era. All the message of the cross had been concentrated in Jerusalem because that's where the early preachers were and that's where it happened, but here already it was spreading. We read that as a result of the persecutions, the gospel spread into all the regions round about, that is Judea, and we know it had spread up to Samaria, and now here it is down to the coast. We have Philip going south and north, and Paul soon to go back to Turkey and undoubtedly preach there, and then to Antioch, and then off on his missionary journeys. In a very short time, the gospel is spreading. Why? Because it's the kind of thing that spreads. It's like perfume. You take the stopper out of the bottle and the odor spreads. You can't stop it. And here is an odor of sweet smell, a gospel which is a gospel of the gracious, loving God. A message like that just can't be bottled up. And if that message is bottled up in you or bottled up in our church or bottled up in our times, because we don't really understand it. We really haven't entered into it. And here these people had, and it was spreading. Here... In Lydda and Joppa, there were Christians who were already meeting and worshiping and serving Jesus Christ. And then the second thing I want you to notice is how practical this Christian gospel is. You see, here's this woman, this widow, who is doing all these good deeds, known for them, so much so that people are weeping and crying because they've lost her. She was so valuable as a Christian, showing forth the love of Jesus Christ in practical ways. One thing preachers always hear is that they're up in the clouds or that they have no contact with anything practical. Anybody 
who's ever been in the ministry has heard that, I suppose, a dozen times. Exactly the opposite is the case. You can escape many practical things in different areas of life. Preachers hear it all. People come with stories just about anything that happens. A preacher hears. It's practical, you see, and Christianity is practical. Christianity is practical in that it serves the world. It has a gospel, yes. It calls men and women to turn from sin and to respond to Jesus Christ in saving faith, but it's practical in serving as well. You know, before the coming of Jesus Christ, there were no hospitals in the world. Oh, somebody got sick in the home. I guess there were people in the home that would try to take care of them, and there were doctors, but there were no hospitals. Nobody established institutions to take care of those who were ill, and certainly not to take care of those who were not members of their own immediate family or who were poor and couldn't pay for it. Where Christianity went, the light of medicine followed, and hospitals were founded everywhere. Everywhere the cross of Christ has gone, there are hospitals. Before Jesus Christ came, there were no orphanages in the world. People didn't care for children who had no parents. Why, the world was too full of people already. People like that didn't even deserve to live. Let them die. Good Greek and good Roman families would expose their children if they thought they had enough. Baby was born, they bring it to the father. That's the way it was done in a Roman household. If he picked it up in his arms, that meant he was going to keep it. If he didn't, then they threw it out. That's the way they treated children. And if by some means they grew up to get to a reasonable age at young life, nobody would take them in, no homes to take them in. Why, they'd just be turned out onto the street. Generally, they fell into prostitution, both the young boys and the young girls. It's just the way it was. The ancient world was full of that. Many brothels, but no orphanages, no leprosariums in the world before the coming of Jesus Christ. There were no disaster relief organizations in the world before the coming of Jesus Christ. You never in all of ancient literature read, for example, of the community in Rome getting together and say, let's take up an offering to send to the poor people who are starving in Egypt. It just didn't happen. Nobody did that. People thought about themselves. And yet it's early stage. You find the Apostle Paul going around the Greek communities, collecting money to send to the poor in Jerusalem because there had been a famine and they were starving. And these who were Christians felt a tie to one another and to other men and women because of a common humanity. There weren't even any great schools in the ancient world. There was education, of course. Plato had his academy, and Aristotle had his academy, but nothing like common education, nothing where there was a concern for those who didn't have means or weren't from good families, nothing like that. Christians have brought that. It's Christians who have gone into the cities of the world and have hunted out the poor, the young, and have brought them into schools to train them and give them skills and knowledge that would enable them to be something other than History or destiny would seem to have chosen for them. Oh, I know that over the years, many of those schools that have started out as Christian institutions have fallen away from it. They become secular with a Christian name, as many of the schools in the Philadelphia area are, and then they become secular without even a Christian name. Just secular institutions. 
But what do the Christians do? The Christians just go and continue to do what they've always been doing, and they start new schools, and they begin to work because it's the nature of Christians to want others to learn and to grow and to understand because Jesus Christ was our teacher and our healer and the one who cared for the fatherless and the widow. It's just, you see, biblical religion. Here's Peter, Peter the fisherman, doing exactly that. There's only one more thing I want to say about this passage, and that is that although Peter had followed this long, long way in the steps and in the power of his Lord, his journey wasn't over yet. Matter of fact, you see, if you read carefully, even in this chapter, that it isn't over yet. Let me put it in the context. In the next chapter, Peter is going to be sent to Cornelius, the Roman, a Gentile, and God is going to teach him that if God calls the Gentiles clean, he, Peter, is not to call them unclean. Now notice, in this chapter, verse 43, Peter stayed in Joppa for some time with a tanner named Simon. That's important, you see, because tanners handled dead animals, and so tanners were unclean. Now this was a Jewish tanner. Even Betty was a Jewish tanner, and so I was unclean, but Peter was stepping forward, you see. Peter was beginning to learn that if he was a brother, he mustn't call him unclean. And so he was, it's amazing, Peter, how far he's come, staying in the home of this tanner with the dead animals, the skins. He was beginning to learn, you see, but he hadn't yet learned that, that word brother included Gentiles who were unclean as well as Jews. And yet that was coming because God wasn't finished with Peter yet. And God isn't finished with us yet. God isn't finished with you yet. It doesn't make any difference where you've come from or what you've learned or how far you've come or how far you haven't come if you're alive. God hasn't finished with you yet. And so keep on learning, keep on doing, keep on serving, keep on loving, Above all, keep on keeping on until Jesus come. Let's pray. Father, bless this study to our hearts. Give us encouragement by the example of this great man, Peter. Great because he was great in you and because he was willing to be nothing for the sake of Jesus Christ, his Lord. Amen. You're listening to the Bible Study Hour with the Bible teaching of Dr. James Boyce, a listener-supported ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. The Alliance exists to promote a biblical understanding and worldview, drawing upon the insight and wisdom of Reformed theologians from decades and even centuries gone by. We seek to provide Christian teaching that will equip believers to understand and meet the challenges and opportunities of our time and place. Alliance Broadcasting includes the Bible Study Hour with Dr. James Boyce, Every Last Word with Bible Teacher Dr. Philip Ryken, God's Living Word with Pastor the Rev. Richard Phillips, and Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible, featuring Donald Barnhouse. For more information on the Alliance, including a free introductory package for first-time callers, or to make a contribution, please call toll-free 1-800-227-5278. 
1-800-488-1888. Again, that's 1-800-488-1888. You can also write the Alliance at Box 2000, Philadelphia, PA, 19103. Or you can visit us online at AllianceNet.org. For Canadian gifts, mail those to 237 Rouge Hills Drive, Scarborough, Ontario, M1C2Y9. Ask for your free resource catalog featuring books, audio, commentaries, booklets, videos, and a wealth of other materials from outstanding Reformed teachers and theologians. Thank you again for your continued support and for listening to the Bible Study Hour.